0: Hi friends, welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends about Jesus. Alright, when we left last time, Jesus was gone. You had hoped that this man could cure disease, bring you food, calm storms. He was truly God of this world. It was unmistakable. Then he was murdered. What kind of a God can get murdered? That's no hero. And that's the state you're left in. And on the first day of the week, so you got a portion of Friday, all of Saturday, and a portion of um, Sunday. So that's how they count the three days, portion of two days, and one whole day. And the first day of the week, Sunday, Mary Magdalene, early, when it's still dark, goes to the sepulcher and sees that the stone has been taken away from the sepulcher. And she runs and comes to Simon Peter and the other disciple, John, whom Jesus loves, and said unto them, They have taken away the Lord! They've taken him out of the sepulcher! I don't know where they've laid him! Meanwhile, other women come to the sepulcher with sweet spices that they might anoint him for a proper burial. They're also very early on the morning. They come right as the sun is coming up. And they're talking amongst themselves as a group of women, and they're like, who's strong enough that can roll the stone away from the door? And when they look, the stone is rolled away. And there's this great earthquake, and an angel of the Lord descends from heaven. And his countenance is like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. And... The keepers shake the guards that were there, and they become as dead men. And the angel says to the women, Fear not, for I know ye seek Jesus that was crucified. He is not here, he is risen. Come, see the place where he laid. And then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and he will go before you to Galilee, and there ye will see him. That's your message. And they departed quickly from the sepulchre with great fear and great joy and did run and bring his disciples' word. And that's where the book of Mark ends. <laughs> For real. Like The earliest account in the earliest um, records that we have, they just end right there. Uh, what a cliffhanger. The, the, what's left in the rest of the chapter of Mark is added by later scribes, but I honestly like the cliffhanger. I think it's good teaching. It's an itch you just have to scratch. Usually the book of Mark is read all in one sitting in a synagogue and you're left right here thinking, what happened to Jesus? And you just have to go ask the missionaries. Was well, the the women are leaving to tell the disciples Jesus met them and says, hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus says to them, Be not afraid. Go and tell my brethren that they uh, that they go into Galilee, and there they shall see me. But when they go and tell the disciples, their words seemed like idle tales, and the disciples didn't believe them. By then, the, the watch that is supposed to make sure that Jesus' body isn't robbed stumbled into town with some pretty wild stories of angels rolling back stones and Jesus not being there. And when the, the watch came into the city and showed the chief priests all the things that were done, <laughs> the chief priests gave them a large amount of money and, say, and said, When people ask, say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if the governor hears that you were sleeping on duty, we will take care of it. So the guards take their money and they said what they were supposed to see, say. Now Peter, um, having heard through Mary, takes off for the tomb with John. And they come to the sepulcher and they're both running together. And John outruns Peter and comes to the sepulcher first. And he stoops down and he looks in and he sees the linen clothes lying. But he doesn't go into the sepulcher. And Peter comes up after John and he goes into the sepulcher. And he sees the, the linen clothing that Jesus was wrapped in and even in the napkin that was around his head and the linen clothes wrapped together by itself. Then they went in also the other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away to their own home. But Mary stays at the sepulchre just crying and crying. She bends down and she looks into the sepulchre and she sees an angel there. And they say to her, woman, why are you crying? And she says, because they have taken away my Lord and I know not where they have laid him. And she turns herself back and she sees Jesus standing, but through her tears and running mascara, she just doesn't see that it's Jesus. And Jesus says, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? And she thinks that he's the gardener. And so she says, Sir, if you have borne him hence, just tell me where you have taken him and I will take him away. There's just so much frazzlement and panic and pain. And Jesus says, Mary, and she really looks at him, and she says, "Rabboni, Master." And she she seems to run to him to to hold him here, and he says, "Hold me not. I'm not yet ascended to my Father, but I go into my but go to my brethren and say, to them I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God." And Mary Magdalene went and told the disciples. Now, this is a key element. Just like the first witnesses that the Son of God was come to earth were women, the first witnesses of the resurrection are women. That's an important note there. Now, meanwhile, that day, there's two of Jesus' disciples walking the seven miles from Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus. And this is going to take several hours, right? And as they, they go along, They talk together about everything that had just happened with the death of Jesus over Passover. And while they're talking together, Jesus walks up to them on the road, but says their eyes were holding that they should not know him. Like again, you're not expecting to see Jesus. Last they saw him, he's broken, bleeding, beaten, dead. And Jesus walks up and he says, what are you guys talking about? Why are you so sad? And one of them, whose name is Cleopas, he says, dude, have you not been in Jerusalem? Haven't you heard everything going around? And Jesus is like, what things? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth, this great prophet, mighty in word and deed. And the chief priests, our own rulers, condemned him to death and crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. We thought he was going to save us, but he's dead. But it's been the third day and there's some women who who have said that he's alive and they found not his body. They've seen a vision of angels and say that they've seen him. But we didn't see him. And then Jesus says to these two, he says, Fools, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things to enter his glory? And beginning at Moses, this is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's Moses. Then all the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc. Jesus teaches from the scriptures all the things in there concerning himself. And as they get close to Emmaus, um he acts like he's going to go further down the road, but they're going to say, hey, it's close to, to evening. Stay with us. So they go in and they, they sit down to dinner and Jesus takes the bread and blesses it and breaks it. And then they're like, oh, their eyes are open and they know him and he vanishes out of their sight. And they said one to another, did not our hearts burn within us? Well, he talked with us by the way, and while well, he opened us the scriptures. And then they rose up the same hour. So it's already evening time, seven miles. It's at least two hours that they got to walk. And they find that the 11 apostles gather together. And um, the, the 11 apostles are saying, the Lord is risen and hath appeared to Simon. We don't have that account. We don't know what happened then. And then they're like, well, we saw him. He walked with us and broke bread. So we've got like sightings of women, sightings of Simon, Simon sightings of these two. And while they're talking about this, it's, it's kind of later at night. It's got to be at least nine o'clock right here. Jesus just appears in this closed room right in the midst of them. Doesn't walk through the door or anything, just appears in the room, which is kind of cool about a resurrected body. And he says, peace unto you. He surprises them and tells them to have peace. But of course, they're going to be terrified because here he is just popping into the room, this dead man popping into the room. And so they're terrified and affrightened. And he says, why are you troubled? And I'm sure they're like, why do you think we're troubled? The dead guy just popped into the room. He's like, look at my hands and my feet. That is, I myself handle me and see. I'm not a ghost. I'm not a spirit. Spirits have not flesh and bones as you see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And they struggled to believe, not for joy and wonder. And he said to them, okay, do you have anything to eat? And so they brought some fish and a piece of honeycomb and he eats them right in front of him. He's like, look, I'm real. I can eat food. And then he he says, I had to die so that everything could be fulfilled, which was written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And then just like he did with the two guys on the road to Emmaus, he starts teaching them from the scriptures and showing how everything in the scriptures It is showing how Christ is going to suffer and rise from the dead in the third day so that repentance and a remission of sins could be preached in his name among all nations. So his resurrection, his fully entering into death and then coming out of death brings about the possibility of repentance or a new life. The remission of our sins, meaning the cancellation of our sins. This is a big deal. Honestly, side note too, this is how we should read scripture. We should read it with the intent of seeing Jesus in there. And then Jesus says to these guys, he says, "'Ye are witnesses of these things. "'Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, "'even so I send you.' "'And then he breathed on them and said unto them, "'Receive the Holy Ghost. "'And whosoever sins you remit,' that means cancel, "'then they are forgiven.' And whosoever sins, you retain; they are retained. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endowed with power from on high. Kind of eventful night. But Thomas, one of the twelve, isn't there that night? How would that be? The day you decide to be an er- do an errand and you miss. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the other disciples are all like, We saw Jesus. And he said, and he says, Guys, I love you, but honestly, unless I can really like touch him, touch the the fact that the nails in his hands, that I see his wounded side. I'm not going to believe that he's back from the dead. So another week passes, and his disciples have another meeting. Thomas is there with them. The doors are all shut tight, and Jesus pops into the room again and says, Peace be unto you. And he addresses Thomas directly and says, Thomas, you wanted to touch my hands? Come touch them. See the wound in my side and be not faithless, but be believing. And Thomas answers, my Lord, my God. And Jesus says to him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet believed. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Well, some time passes, and they just don't know what to do with themselves. So Jesus is alive, but what do you do with this? And Peter and Thomas and Nathaniel are uh, and james and john and two other non-apostles just disciples are there gathered together and peter's like well i don't know about you guys but i'm going fishing today and they're all like okay i guess like you just move on with your life right you have this hope of jesus resurrected and You just go back to living your life, right? So they go back to what they do. They take the boat out. They go fishing. And they catch nothing. That's just how it breaks sometimes, right? Now, they fish all night, and when mornings come, they look out and they see a guy on the shore. And he says, Children, did you catch anything? And they shout back, No! And he's like, well, just throw your net over to the other side one more time and see what you find. And they throw it over, and it's suddenly full of fish. And it's this perfect mirror image of when Jesus approaches Peter the first time and says, cast in your nets. And Peter is like, it's the Lord. And Peter instantly dives into the the Sea of Galilee and swims to shore. The other disciples come in a little ship dragging the net of fishes. and When they come to land, Jesus has already got a fire of coals. And so they take some fish and they take some bread and they put it on the fire. And they number the fish and there's a 153 fish. It's, it's a huge haul for their nets. And Jesus says, come, let's eat. And And they say, who are you? They believe it's the Lord, but it's tricky. And Jesus says, come, sit down and eat. This is the third time they have seen him. When they sit down and eat, Jesus says to, to Simon Peter, he says, Simon, do you love me more than fish? And he doesn't even hesitate. He says, Lord, you know I love you. And so Jesus replies, then go feed my lambs. he says again, Simon, do you love me? And it's got to be unnerving to be asked the exact same question again, face to face. And he's like, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. And on third time, he says, Simon, do you love me? And Simon's just grieved, especially after he has denied him three times. He's feeling unsteady, all of that. He's like, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. So we're establishing very clearly here. Jesus has risen from the dead. He has overcome death. This is the final entry, right? And what are they to do? They're, they're to go and tell other people the good news that they will live again. Joseph Smith says, This is the testimony, last of all, that we give of him that he lives. According to Joseph Smith, the last, the most crucial, the end of all witnesses is that Jesus is alive. It's the centerpiece of the gospel. It's everything. It's an all or nothing proposal here. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to take his gospel seriously. If he didn't, who cares? Who cares? Take yourself and put yourself in Peter's hands for a minute. Back to like this second-hand citizen life in Galilee. You're not a Roman citizen. Probably one pair of clothes. Almost everybody is so poor on the brink of losing everything. Taxes just absolutely oppressive to the point that you can't feed your family sometimes. Death, sickness, disease. Like you can die from a scratch back in the day because there's no such thing as antibiotics. If you get infections, game over. And then Jesus comes and scratches and infections are nothing to him. Leprosy evaporates before him. Like He cures blindness. He, he multiplies food. He walks on water. You don't get it. This is it. This is God come to earth to save us from the oppression of foreign powers. This is the true king. And then he's gone. And you, you watch him in one weekend he, he is dead. And then you start to hear these rumors that he's alive. But other people say it's a grave robbing. Do you dare believe... In this impossibility of life again, because if he is alive, it changes everything. It means that Jesus beat death. Death is not permanent. It means there's more to this life. It it means there's a promise of not some immaterial future spiritual paradise, but the renewal of this world, a new heaven, a new earth, a new you, a new body, a new life. It's all you've ever hoped for, but never had. It means that every horrible thing that, has happened will not only be undone but renewed and restored with radiant glory and joy it's almost inconceivable it's the promise of hope as lewis says once you get this once heaven once obtained will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory so is what they're saying here real do we dare hope in this preposterous dream this ludicrous proposition absolutely. As crazy as it sounds, as outlandishly drenched in hope as it is, the resurrection is actually a historically, historically reliable event. In fact, it, one of the most logical and rational decisions of your life should be to believe that God came to earth, died, and was resurrected. And it's one of the, the most clear historical events we have. Now, th- that's a bold claim, I know, but l- let me tell you why I believe it's true. See, the record of the New Testament that we've been going through is actually too early to be legend. Like Paul's letters are written just like 15 years after Christ's death. The Gospels are written like 40 years after death. It means there's tons of people still alive, still kicking, still talking that saw exactly what the records claimed. They even say things like we talked about in last lesson in Mark 15, 21, that the guy who carried the cross was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Like you can go ask Alexander and Rufus, still living people, if, they, if it really happened. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that there are at least 500 people that were eyewitnesses of the living Lord. Like you can't put that in a public document without significant blowback unless, unless you can test it. Like, Paul is basically giving this bold challenge and asking, if you don't believe, go check it out. And it's completely possible because the Roman government and the, the Roman peace, you can tr- e- safely travel all over the Mediterranean and ask, actually ask the eyewitnesses. You, you put up or shut up. And the fact of the matter is that there really are living witnesses at the time that preserve these words and deeds in great detail. And it's not just believers, there, there's opponents and bystanders that, that saw these works. Uh, if the accounts were fabricated, you bet your tacos that these peeps would be the first in line to dispute the account, but they didn't. In, in order for these things to be altered or fictionalized, um, all the uh, witnesses in opposition would have been long dead, but the records were written in a way way too soon for this to be the case. And then, then you have the empty tomb and the witnesses. If it was just the empty tomb, people would have assumed robbery. If it were just the sightings, they would have assumed spiritual visitation. But taking together, this is big. Paul tells King Agrippa, these things aren't done in a corner. Thousands of people saw Jesus. It went down this way. As crazy as that sounds. Another evidence is just the fact that the Gospels are way too counterproductive to be legend. What what that means is that like if it's legend, they'd clean it up a bit. But um, you, you got things like the first century, the earliest church debates are about circumcision. If it, if it was just fabrication, they would have slipped something in there about circumcision. But Jesus is completely silent on the issue. Or what about the manner that Jesus dies? Anybody in this Roman Greek world, any Jew from this period would have heard that Jesus died on a cross and automatically assumed this dude was a criminal who got what he deserved. Why would you write a story about a criminal? And and moreover, you have this weak begging of Jesus for another path in the garden, the crying out on the cross that God had abandoned him. To any first century investigator, they would have thought that Jesus was weak and failing his God. Moreover, if you're making this up, why have women be the first witnesses of the resurrection? This is not how our culture works today, but women were the worst possible witnesses. Women had such low status in the first-century Jewish culture that their testimonies were inadmissible in court. If you're making it up, you wouldn't even it wouldn't even cross your mind to have women be the first witnesses. It would only be respectable males. The only logical conclusion is that it, they record it like that because it went down like that. Moreover, like if you're making this up, you wouldn't have the early church leaders be such. I don't know for a better word unrespectable trash they're uneducated petty jealous almost unimaginably slow-witted they run away from pain deny jesus at the moment of need why on earth would anybody fabricating this account play up such terrible failures in their leaders nobody would have dared publish such a story like peter's denial unless it comes from peter they're telling the truth Additionally, the worldview that the Gospels present is so contrary to the commonly accepted truth of the day. Greek philosophy is overwhelming in the idea that the physical world is evil and that spirituality is immaterial. The Gospel, on the other hand, celebrate the created world. They magnify the poor and the oppressed. It's a direct, forceful contradiction of the powers that be and any sort of narrative told at the time. It is so different. Like to, to believe in the reality of Jesus' resurrection, uh, it, it, another thing is just that the, the ideas about Jesus' resurrection, they read like reports rather than fiction. Like today's fiction is all about details and realism, but that's only happened in the last 300 years. Ancient fiction is remote like Beowulf or the, the Iliad. There's no details. The Gospels, on the other hand, are very different. You have things like we talked about today with 153 fishes, or the Jesus asleep on a cushion in the stern of the boat in Mark 4, or how he drew in the dirt before commenting on a situation. Ancient fiction writers don't write that way. The reason they write this way is because they're reporting the facts of the story. There's 153 fish and Jesus resurrected. Another reason you should believe in this is that it, the, the idea of a bodily resurrection is so profoundly contrary to anything the first century world would even think to invent. The, the universal view in the first century Mediterranean was that bodily resurrection was impossible. Why? Well, it goes back to the something we mentioned earlier. In the Greco-Roman world, viewed the spirit was good and the body was bad. To them, salvation in its most fundamental form was freedom from this corrupted body. It would have been an anathema to, to them to think of a free soul going back to the body. And the way Jesus was resurrected was unthinkable to the Jews. Though they believed in the resurrection, they believed in a resurrection would come in God renewing the whole world. The idea of one person being resurrected while the rest of the world continued drowning in death would be a nonsense on par with claiming pigs could fly. Now some modern readers of the Bible have proposed maybe Jesus' followers just thought they saw him. But that presupposes that believing in a resurrected singular being was even an imaginable thing. Like, Galilee is straight up saturated in messianic movements. There's a whole buttload of these movements, and leaders are captured and executed just like Jesus. But not a single time is there a story of the hero being raised for the dead. It just doesn't exist. They can't even imagine it. Claiming that your leader was alive again just wasn't an option, unless he actually was. There's all sorts of messianic movements that were crushed with the death of their leader. Why would Jesus' disciples suddenly decide that this was a victory that Jesus died instead of a crushing defeat unless they were given concrete evidence that it actually was a victory? Now, if Jesus didn't resurrect, then you need to come up with a historically feasible explanation for the birth of the world's largest religion. Immediately following the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a new way of thinking springs into the world. This is not how worldviews are changed or developed. Normally, these shifts happen over years, but not this one. The idea that Jesus being resurrected is so contrary to what everybody in the Greco-Roman world believed about a physical body. It's quite different from the Jewish view of the resurrected earth and the coming of God. Jesus was resurrected as an individual individual, And that body could walk through walls and eat and was a promise of our own individual resurrection. The instant adoption of this implausible belief can only be attributed to multiple repeated encounters with the resurrected Jesus. Especially since a God in human form is something that Jews were disposed, is not something Jews were disposed to believe in. If you're Greek or Roman, sure. There's plenty of stories of Zeus or Hermes coming down in human form, particularly to get saucy with somebody. But this is not a part of Jewish culture. Jews believed in a single transcendent God. It was straight up blasphemous, punishable by death with a rock to the noggin to believe that any human was God. Nevertheless, thousands of Jews to start worshiping Jesus as a God overnight, that, what would account for this transformation? witnessing him alive. What else? Nothing. Moreover, as Pascal puts it, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut, meaning these witnesses of Christ's resurrection are reliable because they are true to their witness even to the point of death. This is certainly the case for those first special witnesses of Christ's resurrection, his chosen apostles. James um Of the Peter, James, and John variety is stabbed to death. Peter is crucified upside down. James, Jesus' brother, is thrown off a building, and when the fall doesn't kill him, his brains are dashed like a wet cantaloupe with a fuller's club. And it goes on and on. It's hard to believe that level of self-sacrifice is inspired to hold up a hoax. Evidence points to reality, even if it's not within your scope of experience. Like a cell phone in 1700 seems absurd but it's also real. If you find the resurrection of Jesus to be a tough pill to swallow, what's your historically valid explanation? Explain why Christianity rose so rapidly. Why did no other messianic group make the same transition? How did this radically different worldview become so quickly embraced? How do you account for the hundreds of eyewitnesses, many of whom are willing to die under torture rather than recant? Now, now you can't prove anything from history like you can in a scientific laboratory, but the historical factuality of Jesus' resurrection is much more fully attested than most other historical events we take for granted. And if you don't botch the logical process by introducing your own illogical personal bias against the idea of a miracle, then the idea of Jesus' resurrection actually has the most evidence. People do cut short the, the process. They say they don't have a better explanation, but I know resurrection is impossible. But keep in mind, that's exactly how early Jews and Gentiles felt when they heard this message. It was impossible. It flew in the face of everything they knew, but in the end, they let the evidence change their views of what is possible. And if you find it hard to believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead, why not believe? It makes everything here better. It means there is hope, hope for you, hope for your family, hope for this world. Being resurrected truly covers everything in our lives. It means having a body is supremely important. Do you value it? Are you living real life? Are you living a substitute virtual life? Almost everything will be taken care of in one fell swoop of the resurrection. This idea that we will live again is the supremely most empowering doctrine of all time. What does it mean for you? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and you will find rest for your soul. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.